Section 16 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 1, Part 1. The personal life of Mary the Second is the least known of all English Queen Regnants. Long lapses of from seven to ten years occur between the three political crises where her name appears in the history of her era. Mary is only mentioned therein at her marriage, her proclamation, and her death. Surely the current events in the career of an English-born princess, one who ascended the throne of the island realms, who was withal the daughter of an Englishman and an Englishwoman, ought not to rest in obscurity. It has been the earnest object of the author of the following pages that they should no longer thus remain. Thanks to the memorials of three divines of our church, being those of her tutor, Dr. Lake, and of her chaplains, Dr. Hooper, Dean of Canterbury, and of Dr. Ken, Bishop of Bath and Wells, many interesting particulars of Mary II, before she left England, and of the first seven years of her married life in Holland, are really extant. These clergymen were successively domesticated with Mary for years in her youth and chiefly from their evidence, and as far as possible, in their very words, have these chasms in her biography been supplied. Mary II owed her existence to the romantic love match of James, Duke of York, with her mother, Anne Hyde, daughter of Lord Chancellor Clarendon. The extraordinary particulars of this marriage have been detailed in the biography of Mary's royal grandmother, Queen Henrietta Maria. The father of Mary had made great sacrifices in keeping his plighted word to her mother. Besides the utter renunciation of fortune and royal alliance, he displeased the lower and middle classes of England, who have a peculiar dislike to see persons raised much above their original station. The profligates of the court sneered exceedingly at the heir of three crowns, paying the least regard to the anguish of a woman, while politicians of every party beheld with scornful astonishment so unprincely a phenomenon as disinterested affection. All this contempt, the second son of Charles I, thought fit to brave rather than break his troth plight with the woman his heart had elected. Neither could he endure the thought of bringing shame and sorrow on the gray hairs of a faithful friend like Clarendon. The Lady Mary of York, as she was called in early life, was born at St. James's Palace, April 30th, 1662, at a time when public attention was much occupied by the fetes and rejoicings for the arrival of the bride of her uncle, King Charles II. Although the Duke of York was heir presumptive to the throne of Great Britain, few persons attached any importance to the existence of his daughter, for the people looked forward to heirs from the marriage of Charles II with Catherine of Braganza, and expected, moreover, that the claims of the young princess would be soon superseded by those of sons. She was called Mary, in memory of her aunt, the Princess of Orange, and of her ancestress, Mary, Queen of Scots, and was baptized according to the rites of the Church of England, in the chapel of St. James's Palace. Her godfather was her father's friend and kinsman, the celebrated Prince Rupert. Her godmothers were the Duchesses of Ormond and Buckingham. Soon afterwards, she was taken from St. James's to a nursery which was established for her in the household of her illustrious grandfather, the Earl of Clarendon, at the ancient dower palace of the Queens of England at Twickenham, a lease of which had been granted to him from the crown. 
In the course of fifteen months, Mary's brother, James, Duke of Cambridge, was born, an event which barred her in her infancy from any very near proximity to the succession of the crown. The Lady Mary was a beautiful and engaging child. She was loved by the Duke of York with that absorbing passion which is often felt by fathers for a first-born daughter. Sometimes she was brought from her grandfather's house at Twickenham to see her parents, and on these occasions the Duke of York could not spare her from his arms, even while he transacted the naval affairs of his country as Lord High Admiral. Once, when the little Lady Mary was scarcely two years old, Pepys was witness of the Duke of York's paternal fondness for her, which he commemorates by one of his odd notations, saying, I was on business with the Duke of York, and with great pleasure saw him play with his little girl, just like an ordinary private father of a child. It was at this period of her infant life that a beautiful picture was painted of the Lady Mary, being a miniature, in oils on board, of the highest finish, representing her at full length, holding a black rabbit in her arms. The resemblance of her adult portraits is strikingly apparent. As a work of art, this little painting is a gem of the first water by the Flemish painter Nesker, who was patronized by James, Duke of York, and painted portraits of his infant children by his consort, Anne Hyde. The birth of her sister, the Lady Anne of York, took place on February 6, 1664 or 5, at St. James's Palace, the children of James, Duke of York, were at that time considered with increasing interest by the public, since their uncle, Charles II, had been married nearly three years without heirs. Therefore, the succession of the royal line, it was supposed, would be continued by the family of his brother. Lady Mary of York, not then three years old, stood sponsor for her infant sister, the heiress of Buckluke, recently married to the Duke of Monmouth, illegitimate son of Charles II, was the other godmother. Sheldon, Archbishop of Canterbury, was godfather to the infant, who received her mother's name of Anne. She was afterwards Queen Regnant of Great Britain. The father of these sisters was, at this epoch, the idol of the British nation. After he had returned from his first great victory off Lowestoff and Solbay in 1665, he found that the awful pestilence called the Great Plague had extended its ravages from the metropolis to the nursery of his children at Twickenham, where several of the servants of his father-in-law had recently expired. The Duke hurried his wife and infants to the purer air of the North and fixed his residence at York. From that city, he found it was easy to visit the fleet, which was cruising off the northeast coast, to watch the proceedings of the Dutch. The Duchess of York and her children lived in great splendor and happiness in the north, and remained there after the Duke was summoned by the King to the Parliament, which was forced to assemble that year at Oxford. The excessive fondness of the Duchess of York for her youngest daughter caused her to be perniciously indulged. The only fault of the Duchess was an inordinate love of eating, and the same propensity developed itself in both her daughters. The Duchess encouraged it in the little Lady Anne, who used to sup with her on chocolate and devour good things, till she grew as round as a ball. Probably these proceedings were unknown to the Duke of York, who was moderate and even abstentious at the table. When the health of the child was seriously impaired, she was sent to the coast of France to recover it. After being absent about eight months, she returned in robust health, but till the time of her mother's death, 
she was too often pampered into gluttony the incursions of the plague seemed to have broken up the nursery establishment at twickenham and the remains of the old palace at richmond where queen elizabeth died were put in repair for the residence of the children of the duke of york while their education proceeded lady frances the daughter of the earl of suffolk and wife to sir edward villiers received the appointment of governess of lady mary of york she was given a lease of richmond palace and established herself there with her charge and with a numerous tribe of daughters of her own six girls children of lady villiers were brought up there with the lady mary and the lady anne future queens of great britain elizabeth villiers the eldest daughter of the governess afterwards became the bane of mary's wedded life but she was thus in the first dawn of existence her schoolfellow and companion although four or five years older than the princess the whole of the villiers sisterhood clung through life to places in households of one or other of the princesses they formed a family compact of formidable strength whose energies were not always exercised for the benefit of the royal benefactresses the Duchess of York had acknowledged by letter to her father, the Earl of Clarendon, then in exile, that she was by conviction a Roman Catholic, which added greatly to the troubles of her venerable parent, who wrote her a long letter on the superior purity of the Reformed Catholic Church of England, and exhorted her to conceal her partiality to the Roman ritual, or her children would be taken from her, and she would be debarred from having any concern in their education the duchess of york was at that time drooping into the grave she never had been well since the birth of her son edgar in sixteen sixty six who survived her about a year the duke of york had revived this saxon name in the royal family in remembrance of edgar king of scotland the son of st margaret and malcolm canmore likewise he wished to recall the memory of edgar the great who styled himself monarch of the british seas in her last moments the duchess of york received the sacrament according to the rites of the roman church with her husband and a confidential gentleman of his mr dupuy and a lady of her bedchamber of the same religion lady cramner it is singular that the second appearance of the name cramner in history should be in such a scene before this secret congregation the duchess of york renounced the religion of her youth and was prepared for death by father hunt a franciscan she prepared to die says her husband with the greatest devotion and resignation her sole request to him was that he would not leave her till she expired without any of her old friends of the church of england came and then that he would go and tell them she had communicated with the church of rome that she might not be disturbed with controversy soon after bishop blandford came and the duke left the bedside of his dying partner and explained to the bishop that she had conformed to the roman catholic church the bishop requested leave to see her and promised not to dispute with her but to read to her a pious exhortation in which a christian of either church might join the duke permitted this and the duchess joined in prayer with him and soon after expired in the arms of her husband at the palace of st james march thirty first sixteen seventy one the duchess of york was interred with the greatest solemnity in henry the seventh chapel most of the nobility attending her obsequies her obituary is thus oddly discussed by a biographer of her husband 
she was a lady of great virtue in the main it was her misfortune rather than any crime that she had an extraordinary stomach but much more than that that she forsook the true religion no mention is made of any attendance of her daughters by the bedside of the dying duchess of york the duke of york had been very ill since the death of his sister the duchess of orleans the preceding may he believed himself in a decline and had passed the summer with the duchess and their children at richmond the mysterious rites of the romish communion round the deathbed of the mother had perhaps prevented her from seeing the little princesses and their train of prying attendants the duchess left a baby only six weeks old lady catherine duke edgar the heir of england of the age of five years both these little ones died in the ensuing twelve month the lady mary and the lady anne who reached maturity were when they lost their mother the one nine and the other six years old whilst their mother survived neither of these ladies had any great prospect of becoming queens for they usually saw young brothers in the nursery of the ages from two to four years old the death of the duchess of york was the signal for the friends of the duke to importune him to marry again he replied that he should obey his brother if it was thought absolutely needful but should take no steps on his own account towards marriage the approximation of the daughters of the duke to the british throne even after the death of their brother edgar duke of cambridge was by no means considered in an important light because the marriage of their father with some young princess was anticipated great troubles nevertheless seemed to surround the future prospects of their father for soon after the death of their mother he was suspected of being a convert to the religion she died in all his services in naval government his inventions his merits as a founder of colonies and his victories won in person as an admiral could not moderate the fierce abhorrence with which he was then pursued his marriage with a catholic princess which took place rather more than two years afterwards completed his unpopularity mary beatrice of modena the new duchess of york was but four years older than the lady mary stuart when the duke of york went to richmond palace and announced his marriage to his daughters he added i have provided you a playfellow the education of the lady mary and the lady anne of york was at this time taken from their father's control by their uncle charles the second alarmed by his brother's bias to the roman catholic religion the king strove to counteract the injury that was likely to accrue to his family by choosing for them a preceptor who had made himself remarkable by his attacks on popery this was henry compton bishop of london who had forsaken the profession of a soldier and assumed the clergyman's gown at the age of thirty the great loyalty of his family procured him the rapid advancement in the church the tendency of the duke of york to the roman catholic tenants had been suspected by the world and henry compton by outdoing every other bishop in his violence against him not only atoned for his own want of education in the minds of his countrymen but gave him dominion over the children of the man he hated a feud in fact subsisted between the house of compton and the duke of york on account of the happiness of one of the bishop's brothers being seriously compromised by the preference anne hyde gave to the duke as to the office of preceptor bishop henry compton possessing far less learning than soldiers of rank in general it was not very likely that the princesses educated under his care would rival the daughters or nieces of henry the eighth in their attainments 
the Lady Mary and the Lady Anne Stuart either studied or let it alone, just as suited their inclinations. It suited those of Lady Anne to let it alone, for she grew up in a state of utter ignorance. There are few housemaids at the present day, whose progress in the common business of reading and writing is not more respectable. Her spelling is not in the antiquated style of the 17th century, but in that style, lashed by her contemporary Swift, as peculiar to ladies of his day. Here in Bow Spelling, True Tell Death. The construction of her letters and notes is vague and vulgar, as will be seen hereafter. The mind of her eldest sister was of a much higher caste, for the Lady Mary had been long under the paternal care. Her father, the Duke of York, and her mother, Anne Hyde, both possessed literary abilities, and her grandfather, Lord Clarendon, with whom her childhood was domesticated, takes high rank among the classics of his country. Mary, when an infant, met with more encouragement in her tendency to study in the domestic circle of her nearest relations than from her ignorant preceptor, or a governess whose name and memory is connected with nothing but mischief-making. The French tutor of the princess was Peter de Lane. He has left honorary testimony to the docility and application of the Lady Mary, his elder pupil. He declares that she was a perfect mistress of the French language, and that all those who had been honored with any share in her education found their labors very light, as she possessed aptitude and faithfulness of memory, and ever showed obliging readiness in complying with their advice. His observation regarding her knowledge of French is correct. Her French notes are far superior in diction to her English letters, although in these latter, very charming passages occasionally occur. Mary's instructors in drawing were two noted little people, being Master and Mistress Gibson, the married dwarfs of her grandmother, Queen Henrietta Maria, whose wedding is so playfully celebrated by Waller. The Gibsons likewise taught the Lady Anne to draw, it has been said that these princesses had that taste for the fine arts, which seems inherent to every individual of the House of Stuart, but the miserable decadence of painting in their reigns does not corroborate such praise. From the time of their mother's death, the ladies Mary and Anne were domesticated at Richmond Palace with their governess, Lady Frances Villiers, her daughters, and with their assistant tutors and chaplains, Dr. Lake and Dr. Doughty. Their offices appear to have been limited to religious instruction. If these divines were not employed in imparting the worldly learning they possessed to their pupils, they at least did their utmost to imbue their minds with a strong bias towards the ritual of the Church of England, according to its practical discipline in the 17th century. Every feast, fast, or saint's day in the common prayer book was carefully observed, and Lent kept with Catholic rigidity. Lady Mary was greatly beloved, before she left England, by the clergy of the old school of English divinity. There was one day in the year which the whole family of the Duke of York always observed as one of deep sorrow. On the 30th of January, he and his children and his household assumed the garb of funereal black. They passed the day in fasting and tears, in prayer and mourning, in remembrance of the death of Charles I. The Lady Mary of York was devotedly attached to a young lady who had been her playfellow in infancy, Anne Trelawney. The Lady Anne, likewise, had a playfellow for whom she formed an affection so strong that it powerfully influenced her future destiny. 
The name of this girl was Sarah Jennings. Her elder sister, Frances, had been one of the maids of honor of Anne, Duchess of York, and had married a cadet of the noble house of Hamilton. If the assertion of Sarah herself may be believed, her father was the son of an impoverished cavalier baronet, and therefore a gentleman. Yet her nearest female relative on the father's side was of the rank of a servant maid. It is a mystery who first introduced the fair Frances Jennings to court. As for the younger sister, Sarah, she was introduced to her highness, the little lady Anne of York, by Mrs. Cornwallis, the best beloved lady of that princess. The mother of Frances and Sarah Jennings was possessed of an estate sufficiently large at Sundridge, near St. Albans, to make her daughters looked upon as co-heiresses. Her name is always mentioned with peculiar disrespect when it occurs in the gossiping memoirs of that day. Sarah herself, when taunting her descendants in afterlife, affirms that she raised them out of the dirt. She was born at a small house at Holywell, near St. Albans, on the very day of Charles II's restoration, 1660. Consequently, she was four years older than the Lady Anne of York. By her own account, she used to play with her highness, and amused her in her infancy, and thus fixed an empire over her mind from childhood. The Princess Mary once told Sarah Churchill a little anecdote of their girlhood, which they both agreed was illustrative of her sister Anne's character. The princesses were, in the days of their tutelage, walking together in Richmond Park, when a dispute arose between them, whether an object they beheld at a great distance was a man or a tree the Lady Mary being of the former opinion, the Lady Anne of the latter. At last they came nearer, and Lady Mary, supposing her sister must be convinced it was according to her view, cried out, Now, Anne, you must be certain what the object is. But Lady Anne turned away, and persisting in what she had once declared, cried, No, sister, I still think it is a tree. The anecdote was told by Sarah Churchill, long years afterwards, for the purpose of deprecating the character of her royal friend, as an instance of imbecile obstinacy, that refused acknowledgment of error on conviction. But, after all, candor might suggest that the focus of vision in one sister had more extensive range than the other, that Mary was long-sighted and Anne near-sighted. Indeed, the state of suffering from ophthalmalia, which the Lady Anne endured in her childhood, gives probability to the more charitable supposition. The first introduction of the royal sisters to court was by their performance of a ballet, written for them by the poet Crown, called Callista, or the Chaste Nymph, acted December 2nd, 1674. While they were in course of rehearsal for this performance, Mrs. Betterton, the principal actress at the King's Theatre, was permitted to train and instruct them in carriage and utterance. Although such an instructress was not very desirable for girls of the age of the Lady Mary and the Lady Anne, they derived from her lessons the important accomplishment for which both were distinguished when queens, of pronouncing answers to addresses or speeches from the throne in a distinct and clear voice, with sweetness of intonation and grace of enunciation. The ballet was remarkable for the future historical note of the performers. The Lady Mary of York took the part of the heroine, Callista, her sister, the Lady Anne, that of Nefay, while Sarah Jennings, afterwards Duchess of Marlborough, acted Mercury. Lady Harriet Wentworth, 
whose name was afterwards so lamentably connected with that of the Duke of Monmouth, performed Jupiter. Monmouth himself danced in the ballet. Henrietta Blake, a beautiful and virtuous maid of honor, afterwards the wife of Lord Godolphin, the friend of Evelyn, performed the part of Diana, in a dress covered with stars of splendid diamonds. The epilogue was written by Dryden, and addressed to Charles II. In the course of it, he thus compliments the royal sisters. Two glorious nymphs of your own godlike line, whose morning rays like moontide strike and shine, whom you to suppliant monarch shall dispose, to bind your friends, and to disarm your foes. The Lady Anne of York soon after acted Samandra in Lee's Mithridate. It was a part by no means advantageous to be studied by the young princess. Her grandmother, Henrietta Maria, and her ancestress, Anne of Denmark, were more fortunate in the beautiful masks written for them by Ben Jonson, Daniel, and Fletcher. The impassioned lines of Lee, in his high-flown tragedies, had been more justly liable to the censures of Mr. Prynne's furious pen. Mrs. Betterton instructed the princess in the part of Samandra, and her husband taught the young nobleman who took parts in the play. Anne, after she ascended the throne, allowed Mrs. Betterton a pension of one hundred pounds per annum, in gratitude for the services she rendered her in the art of elocution. Compton, Bishop of London, thought that confirmation, according to the Church of England, preparatory to the First Communion, was quite as needful to his young charges as this early introduction to the great world and the pomps and vanities thereof. He signified the same to the Duke of York, and asked his leave to confirm the Lady Mary, when she was fourteen. The Duke replied, The reason I have not instructed my daughters in my own religion is because they would have been taken from me. Therefore, as I cannot communicate with them myself, I am against their receiving. He, however, desired the bishop to tell the king his brother what had passed and to obey his orders. The king ordered his eldest niece to be confirmed, which was done by the bishop, their preceptor, in state at Whitehall Chapel, to the great satisfaction of the people of England, who were naturally alarmed regarding the religious tendencies of the princesses. Both the royal sisters possessed attractions of person, though of a very different character. The Lady Mary of York was in person a steward. She was tall, slender, and graceful, with a clear complexion, almond-shaped dark eyes, dark hair, and an elegant outline of features. The Lady Anne of York resembled the Hydes, and had the round face and full form of her mother, and the Lord Chancellor Clarendon. In her youth, she was a pretty rosy Hebe. Her hair, a dark chestnut brown, her complexion, sanguine and ruddy, her face, round and comely, her features, strong and regular. The only blemish in her face was that of a deflection which had fallen on her eyes in her childhood, had contracted the lids, and given a cloudiness to her countenance. Her bones were very small, her hands and arms most beautiful. She had a good ear for music, and performed well on the guitar, an instrument much in vogue in the reign of her uncle, Charles II. The disease which had fallen on her eyes seems to have given the Lady Anne a full immunity from a necessity of acquiring knowledge. She never willingly opened a book, but was an early proficient at cards and gossiping. Sarah Jennings had been settled in some office suitable for a young girl in the court of the young Duchess of York, and was inseparable from the Lady Anne. King Charles II, 
thought proper to introduce his nieces to the city of london and took them in state with his queen and their father to dine at guild hall at the lord mayor's feast sixteen seventy five they were at this time completely out or introduced into public life and the ill effects of such introduction began to show itself in the conduct of lady mary like her sister anne she became a constant card player and not content with devoting her evenings in the weekdays to this dangerous diversion she played at cards on the sabbath her tutor dr lake being in her closet with her led the conversation to this subject which gave him pain and he was moreover apprehensive lest it should offend the people lady mary asked him what he thought of it his answer will be thought in these times far too lenient i told her he says i could not say it was sin to do so but it was not expedient and i advised her highness not to do it for fear of giving offence nor did she play at cards on sunday nights he adds while she continued in england her tutor had not denounced the detestable habit of gambling on sabbath nights in terms sufficiently strong to prevent a relapse for he afterwards deplored piteously that the lady mary renewed her sunday card parties in holland it was a noxious sin and he ought plainly to have told her so he could have done his duty to his pupil without having the fear of royalty before his eyes for neither the king nor the duke of york her father were gamblers most likely dr lake was afraid of the ladies about the princesses for the english court since the time of henry the eighth had been infamous for the devotion of both sexes to the sin of gambling the lady anne of york is described by her companion sarah jennings when in after life she was the duchess of marlborough as a little card-playing automaton and this vile manner of passing her sabbath evenings proves that the same corruption had entered the soul of her superior sister end of section sixteen